Welcome to the FaithBridge Sermons Podcast. Today's sermon features Bible teacher Clay Scroggins and was recorded on Sunday, October 16th, 2022. And hey, if you're ever in the area, join us on Sunday on campus at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. and come say hi in person. And you can also follow us on Instagram at, at FaithBridge to see what all goes on during the week. And as always, you can join us every Sunday online for FaithBridge Live at faithbridge.org live. Here's Clay. Good morning, everyone. Uh, So good to see you. So good to be with you. My name's Clay Scroggins. I'm a pastor. I live in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, I'm not the normal preacher here. The normal preacher here is way better than today. And so if you don't like it, good news. It only goes up from here. But I I, I do live in Atlanta. Uh, Yesterday, the season for the Atlanta Braves ended, and I am in total depression over that. So I am here. I flew all this way to say good luck to the rest of the year, Houston Astros. Um... We played you all in the World Series. Uh, It's crazy. Last year, it was just something about it. You could just feel it. We had all the juju, and I just want to tell you, I am here to let you know we will apply all of our juju toward your future victory for this year. We're cheering for you. We're cheering for Dusty Baker. Let's get him a World Series ring. I hope it goes well for you. Uh, Enough baseball talk. You guys, uh, some of you couldn't care less about baseball, and I get it. Uh, If my wife were here, she would say, why did you spend so much time on baseball? It was 60 seconds, all right? 60 seconds. Uh, I am excited about today. uh, Today has been a really challenging passage for me. So what we've been doing this year, we've been just trucking through Luke, and we're at Luke 16 today when Pastor Ken Uh, messaged me and said, hey, you're on for this date, and here's your passage. I said, you've got to be kidding me. I just barely missed Luke 15, which is the prodigal son. It is every pastor's dream to preach on the prodigal son. And then last year, uh, last week, Pastor Ken had the parable of the shrewd manager, which is one of my favorite parables. Love that parable. What do I get? I'm here to preach on hell. How about that? He said, you got hell, and oh, by the way, my son's on a college visit, and so I'm not even going to be there. Uh, This is wild to me. But I thought it is appropriate that it is right right up against Halloween, which uh, what I grew up believing is that if you celebrated Halloween, you're going to hell. So this is perfect today. (laughs) Anybody else grow up in church where you were like, we are not allowed to celebrate the devil's birthday? That's what I learned. i I was taught that Halloween is the devil's birthday. I don't even, uh, I don't know where that even comes from, but I am so excited about the Candy Palooza. I think that is a great way to spin it. It's not Halloween, it's just uh, Candy Palooza, but what a great idea. What a great thing that Faith Bridge, you all are up to. You, you guys have a tremendous church. Every time I come here, I'm so blessed just to get to be here and just uh, getting to know you the last year has just been a delight. So I'm excited about diving in. If you got a Bible, you can turn to Luke 16, uh, and we're going to talk about Rich people, poor people, and hell, all the great topics that we all want to talk about today. No, I I genuinely, I know when you, you know, um, this day and age, showing up for church is not nothing. 
I mean, it's something. Even if you're watching online today, you're spending time. You're, it's, it's time. You could be doing so many other things. So whether, whether you're watching online or over in the communion environment, whether you're here in this environment, I'm so grateful that you're here today. And I really think that if we all would approach this passage with a prayerful heart, saying, God, would you use this to do something in me? You, use this to help me see something I didn't see. I really think that we're going to walk away from here feeling really grateful that we, uh, that we participated in church today. That's my hope. The, the idea of Luke, one of the big themes of Luke is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a little complicated. It's hard to understand. It's, it's, um, there's a lot of opinions about it. It's hard to really know what does this mean? What is the kingdom of God? I really like uh, Dallas Willard. Dallas Willard was a philosopher, professor at University of Southern California, um, remarkable theologian, Dallas Willard defined the kingdom of God. He said a kingdom is the range of your effective will. The range of your effective will. Which sounds like something a philosopher would say, right? You hear that and you're like, what does that mean, right? I mean, you, you get it. If somebody were to, you know, if you, you got your, your backpack or your briefcase or your bag, your purse, whatever, your pocketbook, handbag, whatever you call it, that you take with you wherever you go. And if you turned your back on it and set it down and then you turned around and somebody was rummaging through it, you would feel violated. You would feel, whoa, 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 you, you cannot do that. That is, that is mine, right? That is part of your kingdom. That is within the range of your effective will. The kingdom of God is essentially where does God's kingdom begin? Where does his kingdom end? And, and how do we bring that kingdom to earth? How do we allow the, the values and the virtues of Jesus to reign on this earth? How do we see life in such a way that we are ascribing to, that we are living out, that we're following him in such a way? That we're living out the values and the virtues of his kingdom in this world. That, that's, that's the hope over and over again, the theme of Luke. And so today we're going to talk about this remarkable parable, this remarkable story that Jesus tells us so that we might be able to understand how does he see the afterlife? How does he see eternal life? What, is the, what does eternal life look like? What does it sound like? What does it feel like inside of the kingdom of God? And so that's what we're going to talk about. So if you've got a Bible, you can turn there, uh, Luke 16. If you've got technology, you can uh, obviously pull it up on your Bible app, however you read the Bible. I want us to just read this together, and if you don't have any either of that, we're going to put it up on the screen. But I want to just start by just reading the passage because it's, um, it's profound, it's, it's challenging, it's definitely interesting. It's a little bit confusing, quite honestly. So I want you to just try to observe a couple of things. I want you to try to note who are the, who are the big characters and what are the big themes here as we read this. This is Luke 16, verse, we'll start in verse 19. This is Jesus speaking. There, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple, sign of power, and fine linen, and he lived in luxury every day. At his gate meaning he had such a nice place that he had a gate. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus. He was covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. You probably could have gone the morning without hearing that. <laughs> the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side the afterlife. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, a synonym for hell, 
where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. And so he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family. For I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, well, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Bum, bum, bum. Foreshadow, right? So who are the main characters here? Obviously, there's a number of characters. We've got some primary ones and some secondary ones, but who are they? Who are the main characters? Who would you say? The rich man and then Lazarus. Yeah, and, and Abraham's a character, but he seems really, um, I, I would call him a secondary character. You've got the brothers also that get mentioned, secondary characters, but this, this is really, this is a contrast. This is a, clearly this teaching, Jesus is trying to contrast this rich man and then this poor man. And, and it's honestly, it's a pretty violent contrast because there are so many significant differences between the two. I mean, let's just start with one was dressed in luxury. He was living in this external luxury, fine linens, purple. He had, he had a lot of wealth. He had a lot of, obviously with wealth comes power, but there was this, there, there was this, uh, he was finely dressed on the outside. And then you've got this other man who's living in poverty, living in destitution, didn't even have health care and was starving on the inside. And then we, we see that both of them die, but I think this is just an interesting observation. Yes, they both died, but it specifically says the rich man died and was buried. That he had a service, that he had been appropriately buried. This man was so poor, it was as if when he died, they just tossed him aside. He was not actually buried or so it seems. But the most significant contrast between the two of them is what we call them. What, what, what is this man's name? Lazarus. He's given a proper name. Now, th this can't be coincidence. This is not something that Jesus ever did. To my knowledge, I, I, I don't know of another parable where Jesus gives a character a proper name. What would he usually say? He would say, there was a sower, there was a manager, there was a shepherd, there was a man, there was a woman. And then he would, there was a father who had two sons. He would, he would, tell the story, but never did he give someone a proper name. He calls this man Lazarus. Now we have to understand this, this, this group that he was speaking with, they would have known what this name meant. And so I, because I read a few commentaries and did a little bit of the work beforehand, I'll tell you his, his name, Lazarus, means God be my help. God is my help. 
But what about this man? He gives the poor man a proper name. What do we know this man as? Well, he doesn't give him a name. And I think within this is what Jesus is setting up. This is what's so significant for us just to begin this conversation is that there's a, this is a, in a way, it's a, a statement of identity that this man had staked his identity on God is my help. This man had staked his identity on what? His wealth. That it's as if, if this man didn't have his wealth, he didn't have anything. Look at this verse. Let's jump back to this verse. I think it's verse 25. Look at what Jesus says. He says, Abraham replies to this man. He says, son, remember that in your lifetime, you've already received your good things. You've lived your life in this luxurious way. You got your, you've already received your good things. Lazarus got nothing but bad things. And now there's this massive reversal you used your wealth to exercise your power. You used your wealth to make yourself your own little kingdom. Lazarus didn't have that opportunity. Lazarus had nothing. All he had was, God is my help. And ultimately, it's a question of identity. Identity. This is such an important word. Everybody's trying to figure out, who am I? Why am I here? How do I have value? Where am I headed? which is what identity is. Let me give you just a simple definition for how I want to talk about identity today. Identity is this. Identity is it's knowing, knowing who you are as a distinct individual, knowing why you're valuable, and then knowing where you're headed in life. Your identity is knowing who you are. It's knowing why you have worth, why you have value. But it's also knowing where you're headed we, we, in Latin, there's a phrase that is referred to as the, the, the summon bonum, the, the highest good that every, every man, every woman, every human on earth is seeking, trying to find what is the highest good? Who am I? What should I be living for? And what direction should my life be headed? And it's as if Jesus begins this by answering this for us. Do not make the mistake of placing your identity on anything other than who I have called you to be. Do not place your identity on your wealth. Do not place your identity on your power. Do not place your identity on your profession. Do not place your identity on being a father or being a mother or being an artist or being a professional or being successful or, or being a failure. No, when you place your identity on anything else other than God is my help. You're missing it. He says, don't miss it. The, 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 the beauty of it is that when you stake your identity solely on the fact that God is my help, when you lose things in life, and certainly you will, when you lose a job or when you lose a sale or when your boss isn't happy or when somebody leaves you or when you have problems with your kids or problem with your health, you still have you because your identity wasn't staked on all of that stuff anyway, even though they may be good things. No, when you stake your identity, Lazarus, God is my help. You never lose yourself, no matter what you lose, because you always have him. I'm, I'm telling you, as a, um, I, I would have thought, 
if somebody were to ask me five years ago, I would have thought, you know, if they would have said identity, how are you doing with identity? I would have said, oh, uh, great. I, I settled that when I was in my 20s. I mean, serious. I, I spent so much time in my 20s. That, you know, that's a time of life when you're, you're kind of coming of age, you're becoming your own adult, you're differentiating yourself from your parents, and you're establishing your own identity, who you are as a human. I mean, I remember it started when I was, uh, you know, in high school. I remember having some failure athletically. And when I say some, I mean pretty much all of my athletic career was pretty much a failure, quite honestly. I mean, I was good enough to make the team and never good enough to play. And I just remember this one particular day where it just wasn't working. I mean, I just, it, I, I was playing baseball at our high school and I'm, my 11th grade year, I was hoping to make the varsity team and I didn't. I ended up having to play on the JV team, went to a real big high school and it was so embarrassing. And then my senior year, I thought I was going to get a chance to start and I didn't. There was a junior that was behind me that ended up beating me out. And I had multiple, all kinds of moments where I felt like the, the just where the coach just, you know, when you never feel like somebody's for you and then you start feeling like a victim, you start beating yourself up. And I remember this one particular day pulling over on the side of the road, just crying thinking, this, this can't be, this is not a helpful way to live. I can't stake my identity on sports. It's such a, just a bad idea in general. I don't have enough, you know, if you're a pretty good athlete, I'll try it for a while. You know, you might go well. But for me, I'm like, no, 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 I can't do that. And it was where I began to differentiate myself and really accept the identity that God had given me as a son of God. And then as I move into the professional world, same thing, choosing to be a pastor uh, it was not necessarily, you know, it was not a real popular thing. I went to school in Atlanta at a school called Georgia Tech. I studied industrial engineering and telling my friends I was doing that. I mean, they, they would look at me with this face like, I am so sorry, what happened? Like, why are you doing that? Like, none of them were like, that is so admirable. No, they were like, that seems like a terrible idea. Why? Is someone making you do this? Is there a gun behind your back? What's going on, you know? I, I'm t and so all of that was just great differentiation. But then I turned 40 and all of a sudden, my profession, I started having all these questions about my profession. I shared this uh, last fall about how I stepped away from being a full-time pastor to, to work for myself and to speak to organizations and corporations about leadership and also preach on the weekends. And even all of that was just, it, it became this, uh, a crisis of identity in a really good way. But I'll tell you, nowhere do I feel it more than as a parent. Because when you're a parent, it's like your own identity is out there running outside of you, operating outside of you, and yet you cannot control it. And I spent all this time in youth ministry. I spent about oh, about a decade of my life working with high school students. And when I was working with high school students, I had all kinds of thoughts and opinions about being a parent. I mean, I, I just, I, I was an expert on being a parent before we had children. And now we have children. I, and I used to go to sports games of uh, the, some of the kids that were in our student ministry, and I would watch these parents. Never do you see parents lose their mind and their identity more than on the sports, not on the field, because they're not. They think they are, but they're not in the complex, right? I, I would go, these, peop these people are cuckoo. Like, these people are crazy. Like, never am I going to be one. And then my kids start playing sports. And so now I've got a sixth-grade son who's playing football out there, and I am finding myself staking all of my identity on whether or not his team wins games or his performance or how he does. I think how ridiculous is this? As parents, it's so easy to cheer for the last name of our kids and not the first name of our kids, right? So let me just ask you a direct question. Who, who are you? No, who are you really? What is your chief good? What, what is the pursuit that you're chasing after? What are you staking your identity on? 
being a professional, being wealthy, being powerful, being successful, being an artist, being a teacher, being a mom, being a dad, anything. If you can identify it, it's so helpful to know because then you can at least go, God, help me work on this. I don't want to do this. I know that's not good. I know that's going to ultimately leave me in a bad spot. I know this is not good for me that ultimately every one of us, God wants to get us to that place where Lazarus was. Not poor and not destitute necessarily, but where all he had was God is my help. That's it. That's all I got. God is my help. And then he, after he helps us, I helps us through this issue of identity, he introduces us to this topic of of hell. And and it's going to seem a little bizarre how they work together, but I think they really do work together because all of us, what I've found is, you know, it's it's difficult to talk about hell in church for a number of reasons. There's a lot of different views on it, a lot of different thoughts on it. Nobody has helped me form my views on hell more than, I would say, probably Tim Keller, a pastor out of New York, and then C.S. Lewis, who wrote numerous works on the idea of hell. He spent a lot of time writing about hell. I'm going to read a passage in just a second from The Great Divorce, one of his most remarkable pieces on hell. But what I have found is that most of my conceptions about hell are misconceptions, which hopefully will be good news to those of you that maybe you're not a Jesus person. Maybe you would go, somebody talked me into coming today, and it just is so coincidental that the reason why I left my faith is because of this idea of hell, and now here I am showing up because they talked me into brunch, and now we're talking about hell, right? But what I have learned about hell is that hell Hell is the proliferation. Hell is the, hell is what we would all experience if we just lived out of this false identity. Hell is the long-term effects of chasing after ourself, of chasing after wealth, chasing after stuff. Let, let, let me show you what I mean. Let me point out a couple different observations in what we just read in this passage. Can you put that passage up? I guess, uh, I think this is verse 24. So, so the, the, the rich man calls out to Abraham. Look at what he says. He says, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in the water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. I don't think the agony is something that God has inflicted upon him. I think the agony is something that he's experiencing. Why? Well, look at what he just said. Pop, pop that back up again, if you would. He says, He says, send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in the water. Remember, there's a great reversal that's happened. He was on top and Lazarus was on the bottom, but now he's on the bottom and Lazarus is on top. But what is he still doing with Lazarus? He's using him. He's bossing him around. He's telling him what to do. He's treating him like he's still the poor one. He's treating him like he's the one in poverty. He's treating him like a servant. He says, oh, I'm in so much pain. Now go tell little poor worthless Lazarus to go dip his finger in water and come and soothe me. One commentator says that it is absolutely remarkable how utterly confused and entitled he is. He's so deceived. He doesn't even recognize that the very thing, the very entitlement that got him into this predicament in the first place is what is leading to the agony. And he doesn't know what to do about it. He clearly can't even see it. He doesn't even recognize it. And he's just continuing in it. And then he does something else that I think is very common for people that are experiencing hell. He blames other people. Look at what he says a little bit further down in the passage. He says this. Remember where he said, he answered, he said, well, then I beg you, Father, well, then send Lazarus again. But go, go send Lazarus. He's got nothing to do, surely, right? Go send Lazarus to my family. Why? 
because I've got brothers and they're kind of living the same way. They're using all their wealth to trample on the poor. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Now you might read that and you go, that's kind of sensitive of him. But think about what is he actually doing? See, it's not necessarily what he's asking, but it's what he's not asking. What, what, what he is asking is he's saying, well, go make sure that they get the proper warning. Go make sure that they get all the information. Why? Because I didn't. I didn't get the proper information. I didn't get the proper warm. He's blaming everyone else on the fact that he's here. And so he's saying, well, maybe it's too late for me, but go give all the information that they need for them, and maybe that might be able to help them. No, he's just blaming other people. See, what this teaches us about hell is that hell is your freely chosen, your freely chosen false identity going on forever your freely chosen false identity, just going on forever. If you chose yourself over and over again in this life, where would that lead? Well, it would be hard to have relationships with people. People would eventually think that you're selfish. It'd be hard to have friends with people. You wouldn't really be able to enjoy your stuff. You might have stuff, but you wouldn't have anyone to enjoy with. There would be a degradation. There would be a disintegration. It would lead to not a good place. Well, that's 75, 80 years. Think about doing that for a million years, that's very different, right? This is what C.S. Lewis says. Let me read you this passage. This is out of The Great Divorce, and this is uh, two paragraphs long, all right? So buckle up. Um, But I really do think the way he puts it is so remarkably profound. Here's what he says. Follow along with this if you can. He says, in the long run, the answer to all those questions as far as the objections to the doctrine of hell is a question, well, what are you asking God to do? to wipe out past sins and at all costs to give them a fresh start? He's done that. He has on Calvary. Are you asking him to forgive them? Well, they're not asking for forgiveness. The rich man, he didn't even ask for forgiveness. At no point did he say, I'm so sorry that I did what I did. Please give me some relief. He doesn't say that. He doesn't ask for forgiveness. To leave them alone? Yeah, I'm afraid that is what they really want. And so that is what he's doing. He goes on to say, Christianity asserts that we are all going on forever. And this must either be true or false, right? I mean, it's binary. It's not, well, no, no, it's kind of forever or it's kind of not. It either is or it isn't. C.S. Lewis is trying to make, get us to the point where we go, is it forever or is it not? You got to answer that. And maybe some of you go, I don't believe it is. Okay, well, then it's not for you. Okay, fine. If that's what you believe, okay, But for those of you that go, no, there must be some kind of life after this life. If you get there, then you got to at least ask the question, well, okay, if that's true, then there are many good things which would not be worth bothering about if I were only going to live on this earth for 80 years or so, but which I had better bother about if I'm going to live forever. Perhaps my bad temper or my jealousy, perhaps they're gradually getting worse. And so gradually that the increase in my lifetime, it wouldn't be very noticeable, but it would be absolute hell in a million years. In fact, if Christianity is true, then hell is precisely the correct technical term for it. Hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others, but you are still distinct from it for a time. 
You may even criticize in it in yourself and wish that you could stop it, but there will come a day when you can no longer stop it. And then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy the bad mood or, excuse me, but just the grumble itself going on and on forever like a machine. It's not a question then of God sending anyone to hell. In each of us, there is something growing up which will be hell unless, with God's help, it is nipped in the bud. That is so profound that no one gets sent to hell. Anyone in hell chooses hell. Here's the the way people think about hell. People see hell as this massive, cavernous, just gigantic vault of burning flames that people are being thrown into and crawling up the side of, but this all-powerful God is just closing the lid going, ha, 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 it's too late. (laughs) That's how people think of hell. But there's there's so much wrong with that, according to what C.S. Lewis says, according to what we read in this parable, that there's nobody crawling up the side. There's nobody trying to get out. That if anybody wanted to accept their own responsibility for their sin and accept the grace of Jesus, he's already made a way. He would willingly allow them out, lovingly, with joy allow them out. Which leads to the second big misconception, God is not laughing. Romans 1, God has given them over to their own pleasures. He's given them over to it. If if that's what you want, if you're building your whole life on your wealth and that's what you want, well, then I'll let you have it. If all you want is to to try to be powerful and live your life for yourself, then I'll let you have that. If you just want to live for your next vacation, then I'll let you have it. But at any point, if you want to throw your hands up in the air and say, I surrender, It is my fault. I need forgiveness. He will willingly, lovingly say, come on, experience the joy of me forever. So so what do we do? I I, want to wrap this sermon up. What what, what, what do we do? Well, I think we got to go back and find out, well, who is Jesus talking to? This is always helpful anytime you're trying to understand a parable is to go, okay, was he talking to the church? Was he talking to us? Because see, what we read last week when Pastor Ken preached on the parable of the shrewd manager, he tells us, right? Would you, would you pop that up? This is a little bit before. We, we didn't read this this morning, but this is in verse 14, Luke 16, 14. He says, and, and the Pharisees who loved money, he, they heard all of this and they were sneering at Jesus, going, who does this guy think he is? And so Jesus says to them, look at what he says. He said to them, he said, you are the ones who justify yourselves. You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others. But God knows your heart. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. Whatever it is, that pride in you, that thing in you that you use to justify yourself, God hates that. You you, want to know how you find out where you've staked your identity? 
You want to know how you find out what your false identity really is? You want to know how you find out what that thing is, the shadow side of us that you're really living for? A way to find out is to find out what is it or who is it that you hate? Who are the people that you hate? Let let me give you some examples. I I won't ask for a show of hands because this would be a a real confession. But how many of you hate lazy people? Okay, thank you. Some of you are like, I don't even care, man. I hate them. They drive me crazy. No, here, and listen, it's in all of us to do it. So, so I'm not casting judgment. I'm just helping us all explore that trying to get under this and think through this. There's a, there, there's a huge divide he makes between justifying ourselves, being self-justified, and being God-justified. Recognizing that God has given me everything, that God is the one that has given me life, that, that, if it, that I, I am a sinner saved by grace, that if it were not for God's grace and mercy, that I would be nothing. That's being God-justified. Being self-justified is I hate lazy people. Why do people hate lazy people? Because they think they work really hard. I work hard. If you worked as hard as I work, you could have what I have, but you don't. You're lazy. And I detest you. I abhor you. I disdain you. I hate you. Because my hard work justifies me. It is how I justify myself. And I've got to have an enemy to my hard work. And it just so happens to be lazy people, which is why we close that little, that we close that little uh, drape from first class, right? So they don't have to look back at those lazy, poor, broken, destitute people who ought to get off their rear and do something. And if you did, maybe you could sit up here, right? I never thought that. I mean, when I sat back and coach, I used to, I used to look at those people and think, this is ridiculous. Like, why don't they just share some of that with us back here? And if they did, if, if they would take just a little bit less, we could all have a little bit more, right? Some of you are going like, oh gosh, is, has he been watching Fox News or CNN, right? And then you sit in first class and you look back and you go, no, I earned this seat. Those people back there, if they worked hard like I work hard, they could have sat here too, but they don't. No, that's what we do. We justify ourselves. How about this one? We do it politically, right? I mean, we've already, we're talking about hell. Let's go ahead and dive in, right? (laughs) Don't we? We do it politically. So so let me talk to a couple different groups of people. Nobody in here is going to identify as this because nobody does actually identify, even though obviously there are some of us in here. But I want to talk to the the political extremes, like the liberal Democrats and the conservative Republicans, right? Everybody else would go like, oh, you're talking about the crazies on the ends? No, no, no. That's not me. I, I get it right. I'm somewhere, you know, in between those two crazies, right? But we all know the way it works that anybody who's on one of those extremes, see, it's okay to have political beliefs and think, well, I think the other one is wrong. That's okay. You can be God justified. You can recognize I'm saved by grace. I'm a sinner. I'm not saying I'm always right, but in this case, I just think I am. I think there's a way to run a government, right? You can do that. But then there's also people, they don't just think they're right, but they hate anyone who thinks otherwise. They detest them. They demonize them. They would never want to have anything to do with them. They literally hate them. And why do they do that? Because it justifies themselves. I've got to tell myself that I'm right that I earned it, that I made it, that I figured it out, that I understand it, and they don't, and I hate them for it. What about moral and immoral, right? I mean, as a pastor, I I love morality, but moral people do this. Moral people hate immoral people. If they, well, those are just, they're sinners. I hate them. I detest them. If they were more like me, maybe they would get to enjoy the fruit of it. I'm telling you, 
This is so common. We all do it. And if you will be willing to do the work to find out who is it that you hate, who are the others? Is it a different nationality? Is it a different class? Is it somebody with a different political persuasion? Is it a different age, different gender? Is it somebody from a different part of town? Somebody from the other company or for the other team? I'm telling you, find out who you hate, and it is a sign for where you're staking your identity. So I'll end with this, last thing. This is the big idea. If you, Some of you are wondering, like, what in the world was all this about? Here's, I think this is the big idea of this parable right here, that your love, I like to call them the others, because it's the other. Who, who's on the other side, right? Your love for the others poured out in deeds of service toward them is the inevitable sign that you know you're a sinner saved by grace. You want to know how you become more like Lazarus. You decide to go, can you pop that back up again? You decide to go, you know what? I'm going to love the other side. I'm not going to hate them. I'm not going to abhor them. I'm not going to disdain them. I'm not going to detest them. You know who God detests? The only people God detests? The detesters. God detests people who hate. And so I'm not going to be one. I'm going to choose to love the others. I'm going to love the other side. And I'm going to show it in deeds of service. I'm going to actually serve them. Isn't that what the rich man should have done? It wasn't his fault that he's rich. No, it's not your problem that you're white. It's not your problem that you're rich. But what if you used, some of you are going, oh boy, he really is. What if you used what if you used what God has given you? What if you used your wealth? That's what we want this man to do. Use your wealth. Use it to serve other people. What if you would have used it to serve Lazarus? Your love poured out in deeds of service is the greatest sign. It is an inevitable sign that you recognize that you're a, I am a sinner, but fortunately, the almighty God does not see me as a sinner because I have been saved by grace, the grace of Jesus. And today, there is not a person listening to this today that is not a candidate for the grace of God. It doesn't matter how bad life has gotten. It doesn't matter how bad the hell that you're in you think is, that you can accept God's grace today. And when you do, the natural response is to go, I'm going to find the people on the other side, and I'm going to love them. And I'm going to show it in deeds of service because that is a mark. It is the mark of sinners who have been saved by grace. So Heavenly Father, we just invite you into that. Uh, we cannot do that alone. And God, all of us are in that same predicament that C.S. Lewis mentioned, that we've got the thing in us that we want to fix, that we wish was different, and we try to work on it, and we just can't. And that's where we've got to throw our hands up and surrender and say, I, I, I do the things I don't want to do. I don't do the things I, I, I want to do. I, I am, I'm in need. I need you. So we just invite you in. Father, I pray that somebody today would put their faith in that grace, that they would accept that grace of Jesus, that anybody that's experiencing any sense of hell in this life, that they can immediately, in a moment, throw their hands up and go, I, I, I need a Savior. I am a sinner and I need a Savior. It is available to all of us. And we thank you for your love and your grace. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.